Michael Smith. He's gotten me involved in stuff out here. I think it was his fault. Anybody in California that didn't like it, he's the guy to blame for it. But also, brother, you're welcome, brother Thorson, brother McAtee, brother Jordan. Are you having a hard time hearing me? Praise the. Praise the Lord. That's never happened to me before. But I've been sick, you know, so there's excuses. And so I feel so overjoyed to get to be back here, this time in a building owned by the church. <laughs> and uh, it's a delight. I enjoyed the worship last night, and I enjoyed it. This evening, it was cut a little short, and, and I appreciate that uh, because I need the time. But before I uh, go any further, I want my dear wife, Peggy Readout, to come. I'm sorry, just the way it is, dear. <clears throat> and she's going to greet you. She is an ordained minister of the United Pentecostal Church. She's also a saint and a martyr, been married to me more than 52 years. Well, I'm so happy to be with all of you tonight. This is my first time to be here, and so I really enjoy the privilege of being here with you all. Being with the family of God is so important. I'm thankful that I was able to come with my husband. Thankful you allowed for my son Tom to be here too. We enjoy traveling as a family. I'm looking forward to all that the Lord has for us. I know we're facing troubling days ahead in our nation and in the world, but at the same time there's a great expectancy because we know the Lord is coming again and we know he's going to do a great work in us and through us before he comes again. And that's exciting and that overshadows any of the clouds that would be in our way. So I'm looking forward for any preparation that he wants to do in my life and anything that he wants to do among his people so that his will will be accomplished and a great harvest will be ready for him when he comes again. Praise the Lord. Thank you, dear. I'm going to ask a very special favor of all of you. I, I need to explain how this study came into existence. Uh, it is part of a larger study that has 461 single spaced pages in it. It was a result of a question sent to me by one of my very beloved students of Sister Von L. Kelly from Denver, Colorado. She was in the very first graduating class of Urshan Graduate School of Theology. I happen to have been a founding board member and uh, 
she used me as her primary advisor during those years. She's been a student of the material that the Lord's given me for, I don't know, since maybe 20 years. And I am convinced that she deliberately asked me questions that she knows are going to provoke me because it will, the question will involve language that just doesn't work to deal with the issue. Uh, how many of you believe that God is transcendent? Yeah. Do you understand that we don't speak transcendent? We invent words to represent ideas that we think approach transcendence. But it's very hard for you and me to think of uh, holier than holy, right? Even though the scripture says that in the tabernacle there were the holy things and the most holy things and then that inner sanctum that was the holy of holies and how much holier must the God be than those mere physical things but our minds we, we get to an absolute somewhere we think and we have a hard time thinking beyond that understand uh, when we say God knows everything we get it in our mind that God knows everything, but uh, he also knows everything that can be known and everything that can't be known. And he knows nothing. He knows nothing like you know things because he doesn't have to put details together and come to a conclusion. He's, he knows all the details and all the conclusions already. That's hard for us to wrap our mind around this because it's outside of the scope of our experience. And so Sister Kelly, she would write a question about some of these deep things that use language that just isn't quite right. I didn't have right language. And you can't just make up words. And it drove me to seeking the Lord for a deeper understanding that would include words that were accurate, but that we could understand. And uh, in that seeking of the Lord, he opened this truth that I want to share with you tonight. Are you willing to give me an hour and a half? Say it again, Brother Smith, louder. Now, Judy, you were willing to give me an hour and a half last night. Will you give me two hours tonight? Okay, two and a quarter? <laughs> so, I, 
I approach this lesson every time I've taught it. I've probably taught it five times now, six maybe, with a great deal of trepidation because we have to take a thought journey together into territory that very few people have ever gone. Have you ever been somewhere where you didn't know where you were or where you were going? You've been lost. You kind of knew how you got there, but you didn't know where it was you got to. And uh, that is the kind of trepidation, the trembling that I feel approaching this subject this way. Now, the question that my dear daughter Vonnell Kelly asked was, what was the need that God answered by creating? I'd already given her the answer to why did God create. The Lord had already showed me that. But she asked a different kind of question. What was the need that he fulfilled by creating? And of course, I had to write and tell her, well, you know, the, the word need and God don't go together. Because God doesn't have any needs. He is the I am. He is eternally and always self-sufficient. He requires no outside infusion of power or energy or anything. You know, so... Did God have a need? No. Somebody said, a great preacher said it, that the heart of God had a man-shaped hole in it. And I got news for you. Man's got a God-shaped hole in his heart. But God didn't need man. Right? So a little trepidation in going into this. And I'm, I'm going to pray you bear with me. I want to read first out of 2 Peter chapter 1. Now, Sister Christy has told me that when I get to the slide that took me 44 years to finally come up with a, a graphic that would be correct, she promised me that she's found it and she'll put it up on the screen for you. If it fails, Christy... You're in big trouble. No. Second Peter chapter 1. I want to read the whole chapter, but I'm going to just start at verse 16. For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he I can start whispering again. He received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the 
excellent glory. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. I hope you didn't miss the description of this circumstance. Where was the voice from? And who was speaking that voice? The Father. And where was it taking place? A, a, a mount called the Holy Mount. And who heard it? The hand-picked disciples of Jesus Christ. Eleven of them. They heard it. And then Peter says this. That's not really correct. It really wasn't Peter. As he will explain in just a few sentences. Peter didn't decide what to write. Hello. God chose the words he was going to write. Okay. We have also a more sure word of prophecy. More sure than what? The voice of God speaking from heaven to the Son in the hearing of the disciples. Now that's a pretty sure voice by itself, isn't it? More, that's a pretty sure word. But he says we have a more sure word than that. More sure even than the directly spoken word from the mouth of God. That's powerful, isn't it? Yeah. And that's what we have. A more sure word of prophecy. And we are told whereunto we do well that we take heed. I mean, I'll try to get done. It doesn't matter who issues the prophecy. You have a more sure word in the written scripture. Let me say that again. It doesn't matter how powerful the environment you're in may be. It doesn't matter who's with you in that environment. It doesn't matter how wonderful and tremendous the message is. You have a more sure word of prophecy in the written scripture. That's what Peter's telling us. And we do well to take heed unto it as unto a light that shineth in a dark place. And it's going to be that way until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. Knowing this first. That no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. What does that mean? That means you don't get to decide what it says. And I don't get to decide what it says. It has decided what it says. And it will tell you what it says. 
And the Lord Jesus Christ never spoke a word he didn't mean. And once he spoke it, he wasn't going to go back on it. Okay. Anyway, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of men, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Now, I want you to understand something about that phrase, holy men of God. That word really means that they were men that God had picked and set aside for his purposes. It doesn't mean they were perfect men. And you can, if you study their lives, you'll see they, they were closer than we are, but they weren't, they weren't all that close either. But God had picked these men. And so we don't get to decide because they didn't decide what to write. God did. So when we read in the sure word, the more sure word, we need to pay attention. Because those are words God chose to say what he intended to say. And they are words that we can understand if we pay attention. Are you there with me? God's law of being. So, you still doing okay? Okay. Don't bother telling me when you're not. And if I ask, are you still doing okay? The right answer is, uh-huh. Which means you didn't die on the vine there. Right. What do we know about God? What do we know? Not what we believe. How many of you have ever believed something about God you found out wasn't true? <laughs> well, if you haven't, you just haven't been thinking clear yet. What do we know about God? Well, the word of the Lord reveals eight specific attributes that are his and his alone. He doesn't share these attributes with any other beings. If you had these attributes, you'd be God. And these attributes are the demonstrations of the fact that he is God. And that word God is a whole lot bigger than we have usually thought about. These are the attributes that are beyond our capacity to truly understand. You get the idea of everlasting, don't you? But you've never experienced everlasting. You can't explain Everlasting except for saying it goes on. And after it's gone on, it goes on. And when you get as far as you can possibly conceive of it going on, it hasn't even really started going on yet. Because it's everlasting. These are, these are good words. We use them all the time. But the understanding of them makes us know that we aren't everlasting. We don't have a concept of 
how we can be everlasting. Oh, we're going to be. We're going to be everlasting. And we might get there in this. The first one is that God is absolute. Say absolute. absolute. What I mean by that is he is transcendent. And what that means is he is beyond all limits. When the scripture says that his thoughts and ways are as high above us as the heavens are above the earth. Well, just how high above the earth do the heavens go? Do you know that physicists had decided, based on their mathematics, that the universe had a finite size, a maximum size it could possibly be, according to everything we understand about physics? And they noticed that in their survey of the sky, with all of the telescopes that have ever been turned up, there was one little spot from which they never detected any light. It's about the size of my thumbnail held out that far. Just a little black spot in the sky. And when the Hubble telescope was retired, they got permission to task it to do a scan of that little spot and to focus on nothing but that little spot for 100 minutes. Now, that's not a whole lot of time. 100 minutes. It's an hour and 40 minutes, about the amount of time that you're hoping I'll finish in. <laughs> you know what it revealed? that in that little bitty dark spot, they found more than 10,000 galaxies. And worse than that, those galaxies were moving away from us, some of them at faster than the speed of light. You know what that 100 minutes did? to astrophysics, it blew out everything they thought they knew and makes them start all over with the universe is bigger than we thought. <laughs> and it's expanding faster than we believe possible. Yeah, well, we're oh so smart, we aren't we? We, we know so much. He's transcendent. He's beyond all limits. And when you get to thinking you've got him figured out, you might be starting to get a scratch on the surface because he is beyond all limits. He is holier than the holiest. He's higher than the highest. He's better than the best. He's more than the most. He is the one for whom no limitations can be imposed. None. God's being does not result from any external power or circumstance. Doesn't require input. Now you, you require input. And I've been appreciating the input you have provided for us. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and snack after service. That's great input. And I'm planning on it continuing. 
But he requires no external power, no external circumstance for his existence. And this is what he told Moses when Moses asked, you know, well, what am I going to tell him your name is? He said, I am that I am. I know that that's puzzling, but let me make it simple. He says, I am who and what I have always been. I am. You can't say I am the way he can say it. He is not because of something. You are because of something. But he just is. So, come on, somebody say praise the Lord. I'll go faster <laughs> if you encourage me. He said, so you tell him, I am hath sent me to you. And he is the only being whose existence does not result from some external power or circumstance. God. He's bigger than you think. And you, you know what else? He's able to do above all that you can ask or think. So don't get to thinking you've got such a great mind up here because you, you aren't approaching him yet. Listen to Colossians 1.17. And he is before all things. What is before him? He's before all things. And not only that, but the Lord inspired to Paul to take it a step further. And by him, all things consist. That means he brought them into existence. They don't have a consistence without him having made it so. That's our God. Acts 17.28 is even stronger than that one in Colossians. Paul on Mars Hill said, For in him... You think he meant it? In him? In him we live and move and have our being. As certain also of your own poets have said, for we also are his offspring. Do you know what that means? That he contains the limitless universe. And if you could get to the end of the limitless universe, you haven't gotten to the end of him. These are hard ideas for me. I, I hope I help you with it. One of the ways the writer of the book of Hebrews was inspired to say these things is, for our God is a consuming fire. And in 1 Timothy 6, 16, Speaking of Jesus Christ, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto. You know why you can't approach unto it? 
Because it'll consume you. Whom no man hath seen, nor can see. To whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. Now, number two, and I got to speed up. I know, I'm sorry. Forgive me. God is absolutely immutable. You know what immutable means? Unchanging. Never changes. He doesn't get any bigger. He doesn't get any smaller. He doesn't take in any information. He doesn't lose any information. You got it? He is immutable. He never changes. And you and I should say, thank you, Lord. And you'll be able to say it with more feeling when you understand Malachi chapter 3 and verse 6, where he himself, through the prophet Malachi, said, for I am the Lord. There's only one of those, by the way, the Lord, not a Lord, the Lord. I change not. Therefore, or because I change not, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. You know what that means? If what you do and what you say could change him, he'd have blasted you a long time ago. But he doesn't change. He loved you when he brought you into existence. And he doesn't change. Let me say it again. He loved you when he brought you into existence. And he doesn't change. So he was saying to them through Malachi, if I could be changed, I'd have destroyed you. But I don't change. I started out loving you. I'm going to end up loving you. And there's not going to be any time in between the beginning and the end that I don't love you. Somebody say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Oh, but you know, I've been so bad. He can't love me. I got news for you. He can't help himself. I love to tell the story about the dear old lady in our home church all those many years ago who would stand in testimony service and say, I don't know what the Lord saw deep down inside me that make him love me. And I finally told her he saw a hopeless, helpless, rotten sinner. Well, why did he love me? It's because he can't help himself. He didn't have an alternative. He started loving you and he doesn't change. I hope you're going to take this to another step and understand that nothing you do or say is going to change him. He is not affected by your belief or your unbelief. You're the only ones that are affected by you. Okay. James 1.17 says it this way, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Now, there's some astronomical statements there that scientists have overlooked. But one of the things you're supposed to understand from this is he doesn't vary. Oh, another thing is he's not hoarding 
good and perfect gifts. Because they aren't all up there. They're all from there. And they all cometh down. That's continual outpouring of good and perfect gifts. I'm going to tell you something else. He's indiscriminate. He'd say, oh, look, I'm, well, I'm going to love this one. No. We'll find out more about that in a minute. Third attribute of deity is he is absolutely omniscient. That means he already knows everything. One of the sessions that we're supposed to have this week is learning how to apply the attributes of deity. Let me just give you a couple. We have a service and afterwards we say, wow, what a service. God really moved. And my question is, from where to where? We fail and we say, oh God, don't leave me. He says, where am I going to go? <laughs> well, come on. You see how our thinking is so far off of the reality. We need to know what the scripture says about our God. He didn't reveal it so that he could just admire his revelation. We're going to find out why he's revealed himself. Psalm 147, 5 says, Great is our Lord and of great power. His understanding is infinite. Now, infinite is one of those words that we invented to describe a, a circumstance that we can't experience. Infinite, without limits. You know, the problem of this word infinite is most well known to astrophysicists, scientists, mathematicians. They can't explain infinite, but it is an integral component of all of our mathematics. But we can't explain it. Infinite. You know what you get when you divide infinity in two? Infinity. What if you divide it in 10 billion? What do you get? Infinity. I convinced a Nigerian man who was uh, being sent by UNESCO, United Nations Science and Educational Cultural Organization, to the University of Wisconsin to get his fifth master's degree. This one in statistics. His job was going around the world to third world countries and developing university curriculums for them. And he was a Trinitarian. And I made a simple statement. What do you get when you defied infinity? And his eyes opened up, he said, Jesus is God. Yeah, that's right. This is not a Father, Son, and Holy Ghost that somehow are God. No, God is one. He says, of course, you can't divide infinity. And so it's good to know some of this stuff. His understanding is infinite. Well, he doesn't know what I've been going through. <laughs> Neither do you. Uh, 
1 John 3.20 says, For if our heart condemn us, you ever been there? Your heart condemn you? Mm-hmm. If our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things. Somebody ought to shout, Hallelujah! Hallelujah. When my heart has a thousand justifications for condemning me, He's greater than that condemning power of my heart. And He knows all things. Fourth, God is absolutely sovereign. You don't like this one. If you believe this one, your prayer life would change. God is absolutely sovereign. You know what that means? He governs everything. No particle of matter exists except by his say-so. No particle of matter vibrates except he makes it vibrate. You don't exist without his having made it so. Isaiah 46, 9. Remember the former things of old. For I am God, and there is none else. I am God, and there is none like me. We'll come back to that. Declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, the things that are not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. I've known some people that thought they could say that. But they finally discovered that the universe isn't cooperating. He cannot be compelled to do anything. He cannot be compelled to do anything by any exterior force or power. He is sovereign. How about this one? I'll save it for the prayer sessions. <laughs> Help me, Lord. What he does is determined only by who and what he is. He's sovereign. You can't determine what he's going to do. You know, I, I spent many, many decades of my life trying to convince him to use me in his work in an advisory capacity. <laughs> Revelation 19.6 speaks of a day that's coming. And John, under inspiration of his revelation, said, And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude and as the voice of many waters and as the voice of mighty thunderings saying, Alleluia! For the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. You know, why they could do that was because they finally saw him reigning. You and I I think, if you're like me anyway, you long for the day where his will is done. Not just in you, but in everybody else. Okay. 
And when they see it happening, when he takes up his dominion and starts imposing his decisions, those who know him are going to rejoice. Oh, Lord, pardon me, but in my mind, it's about time. But he has never not reigned. There's only one place where the omnipresent God, we'll get to that, does not exist. In the thoughts of a fool. The only place he can be made greater is in your own mind and in the minds of other people. Oh, magnify the Lord with how much bigger you think you're going to make him. Hello? We're going through these attributes, not because they're a part of this specific study, but because we need to start thinking in these superlative terms to understand our God. Okay. God is absolutely omnipotent, all power. He possesses all power. He doesn't possess all heavenly power. He possesses every electron. He possesses every breeze. All power is his. Any power you exercise came from him. It's his. It's not yours. Be careful how you use it. Isaiah 43, 13 said, Yea, before the day was, I am he, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. I will work, and who shall let it? The old English word let comes from the Greek word meaning hinder. I will work and who will hinder it? Well, I will. I'm not going to let you work in my life. You don't know what you're talking about. You can't prevent him from working in your life. Revelation 1.8, he says, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is, and which was, and which is to come, the, how many almighties can there be if one is the almighty? Just that one. All right, and then God is absolutely omnipresent. This is the sixth attribute. I'm going too slow. I'm sorry. Well, I might have a little twinge of regret. I, I don't know if it gets to sorry or not, but he's absolutely omnipresent, which means he is everywhere all the time. First Kings 8.27, when Solomon was become king in his prayer, he pointed out the promise God made to David and he understood it differently than scholars do. He understood that God had promised that from David's loins, he himself would come. And he said, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, the heaven and heaven of heavens cannot contain thee. How much less this house that I have built. Jeremiah 23, 23, 
Am I a God at hand, saith the Lord, and not a God afar off? Now we want to say, oh yes, Lord, you're, you're at hand. But he's also afar off. Because there is no place that he's not. In fact, there's no non-place that he's not. <laughs> he is omnipresent. He went on to say in verse 24, Can any hide himself in secret places that I shall not see him, saith the Lord? Do not I fill heaven and earth, saith the Lord? I hope you don't think that means that when you get to the boundary of heaven and earth, that that's where he ends. No, he fills that. Uh, I'm going to suggest that there's a whole lot of overflow. <laughs> God is absolutely eternal. He is without beginning, without end, and without pause in between. He's absolutely eternal. I've done it. I still from time to time make the mistake of talking about entering into eternity. There is no place called eternity. There is a being who is called the eternal. No beginning. No end. No gap in between. You get it? Psalm 90 and 2. Listen to what he says. This, this has been in the Bible a long time. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hadst formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. Now listen, everlasting, that's a big space. <laughs> that's a forever time, isn't it? First Timothy 1.7. Now unto the king, not three kings, just one king. Unto the king. Eternal. Nothing else is eternal. Everything else had a beginning. It may go on forever. World without end. He said, of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. But it all had a start. But he didn't have a start. Praise the Lord. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God. If there were two others, they, they're not so, so bright. But to him be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And the eighth attribute. God is absolutely love. 1 John 4, 8 said, He that loveth not, knoweth not God. For God is love. Now stay with me. That doesn't say God is lovable. He is, but that's not what it says. It doesn't say God is loving. He is, but that's not what it says. It says, God is love. This is his attribute, not yours, his. He is love. 1 John 4, 16 says, And we have known and believed 
the love that God hath to us. God is love. And he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. Hey, this isn't just poetry, friends. This is the more sure word of prophecy than even the very voice of God speaking directly. And when he says, God is love, it's not trying to bring a cute metaphor that makes you feel warm and fuzzy inside. It's telling you a fact of his being. And love is the attribute of God that contains all of his moral attributes. Kind, gentle, you know, all of, all of those high qualities that we think. They're all wrapped up in this one attribute of love. And hold on to your seats. Love is the one attribute of deity that most people doubt. I'll explain that as we go. God is not defined by any one of these eight attributes. They don't define him. Any, no one of them defines him. God is all of his unique attributes combined. These are all him. He's all of them. Other direct statements in the scriptures, the Holy Bible, give us what I think is the most illuminating insight into the very essence of God's being. This is where Sister Kelly's question pushed me to seeking him. And as I sought him, this is where he brought me to this cusp. I believe it's the deepest thing about him that he's ever revealed to me, for surely to me. 2 Timothy 2.13. I hope you'll pay attention to it. If we believe not, yet he abideth faithful. So you're, well, I'm not going to believe in God anymore. So what? It doesn't affect him. You're the only one who's going to be affected bad by it. Even though we don't believe, he abideth faithful. That language means that his faithfulness never wavers. It never pauses. It never takes a step backwards. He just abideth faithful. And then it tells you why. He cannot deny himself. This is something that the almighty God cannot do. There are others. He can't know any other God. But he cannot deny himself. What does that mean? He abideth faithful. The fundamental elements of his being are constant and unvarying. He cannot deny himself. Nothing he does, nothing he says can be contrary to or violate the fundamentals of who and what he is. Titus 1-2 makes a brief mention of this. When he talks about our hope of eternal life, which God that 
cannot lie, doesn't have the ability to lie. God does not have the ability to lie. Promise before the world begin. You see, he's the truth. He cannot lie. He's the truth. And if he were to lie, that would be denying himself. Because he is the truth. Are you there? So lying would violate his essential being. And we read that Malachi 3.6. I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. He does not change. No external force can change who and what he is. He abides faithful. He cannot deny himself. And because no external forces or events can change his essential being, his first love for us is never diminished. I gotta say it. I'm sorry. No external forces or events, including your most fervent prayer, is not going to alter what he's decided to do. God's word tells us more things about God. There's some of them I want you to have in mind. God is unsearchable. Okay, where are you going to go to start looking for him? He's unsearchable. Job 11.7 records this. Canst thou by searching find out God? Canst thou find out the Almighty unto perfection or completely? What's the answer to those questions? No. Why? Because he's unsearchable. Job went on to say, it is as high as heaven. How high is that? It's a few feet above our heads. Yeah. What canst thou do? Deeper than hell. What canst thou know? You're going to search him out, are you? Yeah. The measure thereof is longer than the earth. Now, if you take off going to the east, how long can you keep going? How long can you keep going? Forever and ever, ever. It, the measure thereof is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. And then in Job 37, 23, the great man of God said, Touching the Almighty, we cannot find him out. He is excellent in power and in judgment and in plenty of justice. He will not afflict. How many of you know he made a mistake when he said that? He did not make a mistake. Second thing, God is unique. Unique. You know, I'm unique. You're unique, just like everybody else. 
Some of you got that. Isaiah 44, 6, Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, and I am the last, and beside me there is no God. You know what that means? In the line I'm standing in, I'm the only one, and unless, so you won't think there's a second line, there's none on either side either. <laughs> He's alone. Isaiah 44, 8, we're going to spend... Uh, what time is it? Oh, don't tell me. <laughs> Fear ye not, neither be afraid. Have not I told thee from that time and have declared it? Ye are even my witnesses. Don't ever forget that. You are the ones who will testify about him. Ye even my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? Yea, there is no God. I know not any. That's another thing the omniscient God doesn't know. Some other God. Isaiah 45, 5. I am the Lord and there is none else. There is no God beside me. I girded thee, though thou hast not known me. We're talking about the God who is unique. There's nothing similar. And that'll come soon. That they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord and there is none else. Boy, he seems to be a little picky about being exclusively God, doesn't he? So the next time you get to thinking you're special, there's no room on the throne. Isaiah 45, 21 and following, Tell ye, he said, and bring them near, yea, let them take counsel together. In other words, put your minds to it and really get your act together and take counsel. Who has declared this from ancient time? Who hath told it from that time? Have not I the Lord, and there is no God else beside me, a just God and a Savior. There is none beside me. Are you getting the idea he's unique? Yeah. Hosea 13.4 Yet I am the Lord thy God from the land of Egypt. That doesn't mean he came from Egypt. Yeah. But I became your God when I took you out of Egypt. That's when you figured out that I was God. And thou shalt know no God but me. Why? For there is no Savior beside me. In case you didn't recognize it, that verse in Hosea 13.4 makes Savior the equivalent of God. You shall know no God but me, for there is no Savior beside me. Praise the Lord. Isaiah 43.10-12. through 12. You all ought to memorize these verses. Ye are my witnesses saith the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen. You didn't choose him. He chose you. And why did he choose you? That ye may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Did you get that? Know, believe, understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. And then 
I got to I got to know. I got to know what time it is. It will determine how bad I'm going to feel. God is incomparable. Somebody say incomparable. What does that mean? Incomparable. There's nothing like him. He's not just unique. There's nothing even similar. Psalm 89.6. Oh, I wish our Sunday school literature writers would read the scripture. For who in the heaven can be compared unto the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty can be likened unto the Lord? What's the answer to those questions? None. Isaiah 40, 18. To whom then will ye liken God? Or what likeness will ye compare unto him? Isaiah 40, 25. To whom then will you liken me? Or shall I be equal, saith the Holy One? Not Holy Three. Holy One. Isaiah 46, 5. To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be like? Isaiah 46, 9. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me. So, no matter who tells you that the Godhead is like an egg, it's got the shell, it's got the yolk, and it's got the white. They don't know what they're talking about. And I'm going to go so far as to say they don't know him. They've got a false god in their mind because God is not like an egg. They'll tell you the Godhead is like fire, heat, and light. No, he's not. He's incomparable. There's nothing like him. Oh, they say, well, you know, the Godhead, it's kind of like uh, water, ice, and steam. No, that's not like him either. Not similar. Not a good example. God is not. You know what we do when we think about God? We take ourselves and we eliminate all of our weaknesses, all of our failures, all of the negatives, and we amplify all of the good and we, we put in good that was subjugated by the evil. And then we make that great big and we push it out into infinity and say, that's like God. Wrong. There's nothing like him. He is not all of the finest qualities of humanity made immense. No. And God is incomparable. Incomparable. God is unique. God is unsearchable. But God has revealed himself. 
I dealt with a Trinitarian scholar. He thought he was a scholar. Would always argue with me about the Godhead. <laughs> and he said, you oneness Pentecostals, you think you know and understand God, but you don't realize your finite minds can never encompass the infin infinite God. And you know what I did? And I said, I feel sorry for you. He said, what? I said, I feel sorry for you. He says, why do you feel sorry for me? I says, because you've got such a small, incapable God. He says, I do not. My God is all powerful. I said, no, no, no. You've already proven that he's not. What do you mean? I said, your God doesn't have the ability my God's God. Okay, go for it. My God is able to make himself known and understood to the finite minds of men. And your God can't. He never argued with me again. In fact, I don't even think he ever talked to me again. <laughs> but now God is revealed. God is relative and God is relevant. He is revealed. He relates to you and me. And he is relevant to your situation, who and what you are. We need to know the deep things that God has revealed about himself because they explain who and what he really is, how and why he does what he does, and how and why he doesn't do what he doesn't do. If we know these things about him, that's what will help us find the answers to the very important questions. I'm going to ask this question. If you've ever asked it, would you raise your hand for me? Who am I? I think the first time I asked it, I was a kid, small, not even in school yet. What is the purpose of my life? You haven't? If you have, raise your hand. You know, you're just fortunate that I don't ask you to point your nose. <laughs> Why did God create? I can't tell you how many times I've been asked that question. And it was in the answer to that question that this study comes. Why does God allow all of this pain and suffering? If God knows everything, and he is all-powerful, couldn't he have thought of a better way? Well, you know, the Lord has revealed the answer to all these questions. Now, is it time for me to quit? <laughs> we have a, had a pastor in Connecticut. It didn't matter what was happening in the service at 9 o'clock. He went and he shut out the lights. It didn't matter who was preaching. It didn't matter how big an altar service was. Nine o'clock, he went and shut out the lights so everybody's time to go home. <laughs> Don't dare. <laughs> but to get to that answer, there's 
another essential principle of God's being that will help us answer these questions. To see it, you need to take that thought journey back through the ages of time since the beginning with me. And that's not easy for us to do. This is what makes it a hard thing for me to teach. So, in your mind, can you think with me back to the time of Adam in the garden? Can, can you get your mind there? We've got it written in scripture. We ought to be able to. What about before Adam was made? Can you get back that far in your mind? All right, let's go all the way. Long before the heavens and the earth were created. Back to the very beginning. In the beginning was the word. And it was the word that made everything in the beginning when God created the heavens and the earth. You see, it's an earlier beginning. Are you back there? Before there was anything except for God. So what do you know about the beginning? Most important thing you can know about the beginning. Any guesses? Oh, you think I've got the answer? I do. The most important thing you can know about the beginning is God didn't have one. So when you read in the scripture, in the beginning, you need to ask the question, in the beginning of what? Because God didn't have a beginning. Well, it's so simple when it's said, isn't it? <laughs> Why does it take some ignoramus for God to reveal it to you? God existed before all beginnings, and there's more than one in the scripture. Genesis 1.1 is the beginning of the heavens and the earth. John 1.1 is the beginning of everything that is not God. And the Bible provides an accurate description. Christy, are you ready? I'll give you the sign and you put the picture up. I hope you understand this took me 44 years to figure out how to represent this in a graphic. What are you chuckling about, Jesse? <laughs> Just because you've seen it a couple times. But the Bible provides an accurate description of before the beginning. How many of you think that, that word before and the beginning are hard to grasp a hold of? Before the beginning. And 44 years to complete, as much as is possible to complete, an accurate graphic of before the beginning. And the next picture you see up there is going to be what before the beginning looked like. Who wants to see it? Is it worth five bucks? No, not that one. Come on, Chris. There you go. Except for it didn't have those ripples. You got a ripply screen up there. God is light. In him is no darkness at all. No variableness, no shadow of turning. Other than God, what existed before the beginning? That's not exactly right because not even nothing existed before the beginning. 
what existed before the beginning was God, and God was everything. I'm sorry for that, pulling that prank on you. <laughs> God is light, and there was no darkness at all. The one who dwells in the light no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen or can see, to whom be honor, glory, and so on. So, on. so before the beginning, God is everything. Would you repeat that for me? God is everything. Before the beginning, God is everything. What else is there? You know why there's nothing else? Because as long as, as God is everything, there can't be something else. Because he is everything. Anybody get it? Help me, please. Everything. Before the beginning, only God existed. Not even nothing existed in addition to him. God was everything. Before the beginning, there is no space. There is no place there is no time before the beginning God is absolutely self-sufficient so why did he create something else did he need it what need did his creating fill uh, that language doesn't work. God and need. No, God doesn't need. But there is a fundamental law that God imposes upon himself. It's not imposed on him. It is a part of his essential being. You are subject to this law. I am subject to this law. This platform is subject to this law. The sound waves are subject to this law. Everything that is is subject to this law. He has imposed this law upon himself. And that law I'll give you in three words. Next time we meet. I'm just trying to encourage you, you know, that the, you know, this is going to end. I call it God's law of being. Existing, being. Existence demands justification. Are you there? What does that mean, Brother Readout? Well... Give me time. I'm getting to it. The scripture tells us that there's no justification for a tree that does not bear fruit to exist. The Lord doesn't accept that. Existence demands justification. So what happens to the tree that doesn't bear fruit? 
What justifies it having been brought into existence? Well, you cut it down, make firewood. Well, I don't want to be a tree that has my existence justified by being cooked. In my case, I was created to be a warning to numbskulls. Don't be like that. That was in Luke 13, by the way, the story of the fig tree. Come, cut it down. Why cumbereth it the ground? Now, the scripture also declares to us that there's no justification for a branch that does not bear fruit, not produce fruit, but bear fruit. There's no justification for it to exist. And you can find it in John 15 too. Listen to what the Lord Jesus himself said. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. See, the scripture also tells us that there's no justification for an unprofitable servant to remain in service. These are things the Lord Jesus himself said, Matthew 25, 30, and cast ye the unprofitable servant into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You know, they couldn't justify their existence. And so what they were created to be could not be. So he justified their existence by making them a bad example, to, something not to follow. Existence demands justification. Now, i, I got to make a little deviation. You've heard the story, misery loves company. That's not true. Misery demands company. Doesn't care whether it loves it or not. It demands it. If I'm going to be miserable, I'm going to help you be miserable too. Yeah. Existence demands justification. This is, to my mind, as far as I've been able to find out, as far as God's been able to reveal himself to me, that this may be his most fundamental principle of all. God's law of being. He imposes it upon himself. And it is imposed upon everything else. That explains why God does everything he's done. It explains why God does everything he does. It explains why God will do everything he will do. Existence demands justification. Say it with me. Existence demands justification. Why do you exist? What justifies your existence? So the question the Lord brought to my mind to help me get into this was, how can God's existence be justified? God, everything, is the functional equivalence to God nothing. Are you back there before the beginning when God is everything? 
What difference does he make? What good is he? Is it any different than it would be if he didn't exist? If there was nothing, God everything is the functional equivalence of God nothing. And oh dear sister Von L. Kelly, before this study, asked me to explain that verse. What do you mean by God everything is the functional equivalent of nothing? And I wanted to scream out, read my mind! So I don't have to write anything. If God is everything, he makes no difference. Psalm 115.1 Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name give glory, for thy mercy's sake and for thy truth's sake. Wherefore should the heathen say, where is now their God? But our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they speak not. They eyes they have, but they see not. They have ears, but they hear not. Noses have they, but they smell not. That doesn't mean they don't stink. It means their noses don't have any function. They have hands, but they handle not. Feet have they, but they walk not. Neither speak they through their throat. They that make them are like unto them. So is everyone that trusteth in them. You know what he was saying? What justifies the existence of this idol? What does he do? Why, why do you worship something you got to carry from place to place? Why do you worship something that didn't even exist until you carved it? You know? What justifies the existence of an idol? Are there? So we come to the big question. What is the value of a God who does nothing? Are you still with me? Because we can continue next time. What is the value of a God who does nothing? God everything has absolute and infinite value in and of himself. But as long as God is everything, that value is only potential. I went to my boss one day years ago at the radio station and complained that I was worth more than he was paying me. I said, I have greater potential than you're paying me for. He said, use your potential and I'll, pray you, I'll pay you for it. What good was my potential? It's not worth anything until it's put into action and used. So God only has potential value when he's everything. And what is the true value of potential? How is true value determined? Well, the hard fact is, and the scripture will bear this out in just a, a 
few minutes. The true value of anyone or of anything must be determined by someone else. Have you ever looked closely at the paintings of Salvador Dali and wondered who would even give 20 bucks for that? You know, beauty's in the eye of the beholder, value is in the eye of the beholder. Romans 12.3, would you turn to this passage? I'm going to ask two questions in a minute. And I, I assure you, neither one of them is a trick question. So don't accuse me of asking trick questions. At least not tonight. Romans 12.3 For I say, through the grace given unto me to... Every, I hope you understand that the word man there is not used in a gender-specific manner. So you ladies don't get to say, Phew, that's not talking about me. <laughs> it is. I'm saying to you through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly according as God hath dealt to every man, not a, but the measure of faith. Now here's the first question. Have you ever met someone who thought of himself more highly than he ought to think? Yeah, sure we have. Second question, not a trick question. But have you ever met someone who knew they were thinking of themselves more highly than they ought to think? They're thinking of themselves just as high as they think they should think of themselves. And they don't know that it's a mile too high. So we are told not to try to ascribe our own value to ourselves. Your opinion of yourself does not determine your true value. When you have failed to live for God, that does not determine your true value. When your conscience condemns you, God is greater than your conscience. Say praise the Lord. The opinions of people who don't know you are just as wrong as your own opinion of you. So how can the true value of God everything be determined? God's personal value has to be determined by someone else. And before the beginning, there is no one else because he's everything. 
So who's qualified to determine God's true value? See, God can have no functional value at all as long as he's everything. So before the beginning, no one and nothing else existed to judge his true value. So there are three things that God must do to justify his own existence. First, he must define who and what he is. As long as God is everything, nothing else can exist. So God must define himself to be something for something else to be possible. If he's everything, what else can there be? But if he is something, that creates a possibility that didn't exist. Something else might be made. Are you there? Is it a new thought? It was new to me. But understand this. God cannot make an arbitrary decision to be something. He cannot deny himself. He has to declare what he is. He doesn't get to say, well, let's see. I could be good or I could be bad. What shall I be? No, no, no. I am that I am. It's not I am what I'm going to be. It's I am what I am. I am that I am. You tell him that I am. He's not I am becoming. I am. So he has to define who and what he really is. Are you there? And that's what the scripture is talking about in John 1.1. 1, 1, and in 1 John 1.1. 1, 1, and in Revelation 3.14. And a bunch of other scriptures. In the beginning was what? The word. And the word is God's self-definition. The second thing he must do is he must create something else. He defines himself and that makes something else possible. But that possibility is not enough. He has to actually create something else. Not just the possibility of something else. So defining himself as something rather than everything makes something else possible. And God's defining himself as light. Are you listening? God defining himself as light created the possibility of not light. What we call darkness. God defining himself as good created the possibility of evil. You look at it yourself in Isaiah 45, starting at verse 6. You hear his own testimony in this more sure word of prophecy. Isaiah 45, 6. I am the Lord, and there is none else. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. Now, I got I to gotta make sure you don't mistake this language. He's not talking about two things, he's, or four things. He's talking about two things. He says, I form the light, 
And what is the result of my forming the light? I bring darkness into existence. I make peace. And what does my making peace result in? The possibility of evil. I did it. Now, don't think God made something evil. Oh, but Brother Rita, the Lord made the devil. No, he didn't. He made Lucifer, the son of the morning, the anointed cherub which covereth. Perfect in the day he was created. And perfect from the day he was created until he lifted himself up in pride and fell, became evil. Let me tell you why. God doesn't change. What's going to happen to not God? You get it? That doesn't mean it has to degenerate, but it has to change because it's not God. And God is immutable, and he's the only one who's immutable. So anything he creates is going to change. But I hope you'll understand me when I tell you that it doesn't have to be a degeneration. You can go to the creator and he can improve on perfection. He's going to do it. And he's going to do it to us. See, The third thing he must do is he must reveal himself to that something else. What's, what's going on here? Existence demands justification. And how can his existence be justified? He has to define himself, who and what he is. He doesn't become something. He defines who and what he is. And then he must make the possibility of that something else that came into existence when he defined himself specifically. He's got to make it real. He's got to create it. And then he's got to reveal himself to that something else so that it has the opportunity to know him and judge his true value. Are you there? God could prove his value and justify his existence only by revealing himself to his creation. That's why you were told in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And it was by that word that everything that was made was made. Okay. So revealing himself would be the greatest thing that God everything could do. Could be nothing greater done than him revealing himself. Now, I am not going to go through these 16 words. There are 16 words the Greek New Testament uses to explain God's self-revelation, his self-definition. And I'm not going to go through those. Somebody say thank you for your mercy, Brother Rita. Because I fell asleep 20 minutes ago. You know... You know how I'm going to know this was a good message? Somebody's going to say, oh, Brother Rhea, that was a wonderful message. I woke so refreshed. <laughs> but I'll tell you what, with pastor's permission, 
you can ask him and he can give you a copy of these notes that contain all 16 of those words. Oh, it's killing me to pass these up. They're so good. They're scripture. And the names of God, they all reveal something about his character. The one I like best, I think, is Emmanuel. Emmanuel. We're told that it means God with us. But do you know what God with us means? Not really. The first thing that you're to know from Emmanuel is it does not mean God against us. That would be Negeduel. God against us, but it's Emmanuel, God with us, not opposed, but on our side. But it also means that God is with us, not far away, but close with us. And the third thing it means, and those of you who've had exposure to the principle of dynamic success should have thought of this. God with us means that he is not forcing us to be with him. He's not yet imposing his dominion. But he is with us, allowing us to judge his value as Lord. So Jesus Christ is God's self-definition manifested in flesh. And then comes those questions, who am I? You are one of the beings that God created in his own image. What is the purpose of my life? You were created to know God. Period. You were created to determine God's true value. And you will become the justification for his existence. You and me. But you must know and understand him before you can determine his true value. You can't do it as long as he's just a doctrine. Jeremiah 9.24. Do I still have 10 minutes? You know what I'm going to ask next. Can I have 20? <laughs> but let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me that I am the Lord, which exercises loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, saith the Lord. I hope you get it. He doesn't want you to understand and know him that he's the Lord who exercises condemnation. He revealed himself to make it possible for you and me to know him. And that was at Isaiah 43, 10, 11, and 12. I ask you to memorize. You are my witnesses, saith the Lord. 
What do witnesses do? They testify. And what do we testify about? Oh, I want to testify about talking in tongues. I'm going to testify about getting baptized in Jesus' name. I'm going to testify about how great my pastor is. Do that. But you make sure your shepherd is the great shepherd. Got you off the hook there, didn't I, buddy? Yeah. His sacrifice at Calvary is the ultimate evidence that justifies his existence. What actually happened. And it's very likely that some of you don't have any idea what really happened at Calvary. And I don't say that critically. Because I didn't. But Christianity has been teaching falsehood about what happened at Calvary for 2,000 years. That's a pretty bold statement, isn't it? Anybody think I might have the proof to back it up? What is the great error? How many of you ever heard a statement like, mercy triumphed over justice at Calvary? That's a lie. Christianity's taught that God violated his absolute justice by exalting his absolute mercy. Christianity teaches that Calvary is a glorious triumph of mercy over justice, like there was some kind of combat between the two. The error is founded upon two truths. How many of you knew that a lie can be founded on a truth? Here's the first of the two truths. God's justice demands the death of the sinner. Can I prove it? Ezekiel 18.4 Behold, all souls are mine. As the soul of the Father, so also the soul of the Son is mine. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. True or false? True. The second truth that they misuse is God's mercy. Paid the death penalty price for the sinner at Calvary. Is that true? Romans 5, 6, and 7, and 8. For when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Two truths. You sin, you die. And Christ paid that debt. Those are two truths. But what they say about it, that 
God violated his justice by applying mercy is blasphemy. If we believe not, yet he abideth faithful, he cannot deny himself. And the scripture is full. There are dozens and dozens of passages which talk about justice being one of God's fundamental moral attributes. I'm going to ask the question, Job 8.3, doth God pervert judgment? Or doth the Almighty pervert justice? Yes or no? Well, only at Calvary. Never. Proverbs 21.3, to do justice and judgment is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. You notice it didn't say then the sacrifice of bulls and goats and oxen and lambs. More acceptable to do justice is more acceptable than sacrifice, period. Any kind sacrifice. The Lord is described in the scripture as being the habitation of justice. Jeremiah 50 and verse 7, you can read it for yourself. He cannot deny himself. He cannot violate justice. Isaiah 9, you know verse 6? You know verse 7 of the increase of his government and peace. There shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it. And to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. There's nothing in there about mercy overcoming justice, is there? Not at all. Jeremiah 23, 5, you can read it for yourself. Where he talks about the king coming who will execute judgment and justice in the earth. Psalm 89, 14. Justice and judgment are the habitation of thy throne. Mercy and truth shall go before thy face. Now, I'll make some statements. I'm going to skip by the, the scriptures that prove it. The scriptures are all in the written notes. It is a sin to afflict the just. That's a sin. Jeremiah 17, 15, Proverbs 17, 26 tell you that it is a sin to afflict the just. Not defending the innocent is a sin. Psalm 82, 3 says it. Psalm 140, 12 says it. How about this one? Shedding innocent blood is not just. Jeremiah 22, 3, Joel 3, 19. So here's a question for you. Is it justice when the innocent 
pays the penalty for the guilty. Is it justice to punish someone for the sins of someone else? Now, the innocent paying the price for the guilty is great mercy indeed, but there is no possibility it can ever be defined as justice because the scripture eliminates that possibility across the board. It's not justice. Yet Christendom has taught that God violates justice when it suits his purpose and even worse, that he takes pleasure in doing it. Isaiah 53.10 Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. Does that trouble you? It pleased the Lord to bruise him. If he would do that to the Holy One, what would prevent him from doing it to you or anyone else? That's why I said before, love is the one attribute of God that most people doubt. Because we've been told that he is unjust. And we somehow innately know that love cannot be unjust. But we're taught that God violates his justice. So how can men trust a God who is unjust? And how can people who have been taught that God is unjust correctly evaluate his worth and justify his existence? Well, I'm telling you, God is not unjust. He is the righteous judge. That's what we're told in 2 Timothy 4.8. His determinate counsel and foreknowledge resulted in a specific act of absolute justice. That's Acts 2.23. And him, Christ, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. This wasn't something that man imposed. He was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. It was determined counsel. God said, what I've determined, what my counsel is going to stand. It's going to happen. So Calvary, I want you to understand, exhibits the absolutely perfect fulfillment, both of absolute justice and absolute mercy. So I bring you this question. Why hath the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all? Isaiah 53, 6 says he did that the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Well, I'll tell you why. Are you still with me? I've done my best to put you to sleep. 
Why did the Lord lay on him the iniquity of us all? Because justice demanded that he himself pay the price for having created, or at least for not having prevented his creatures from messing everything up. Justice demanded that he take responsibility for what he did. Why did it please the Lord to bruise him and to put him to grief? As we were told in Isaiah 53.10. Because that was the ultimate expression of the absolute justice of God. He bears the ultimate responsibility for having created things the way he did. And investing in you and me the image of him and given us the prerogative to make choices based on our own sensibilities and appetites. Why did he not defend himself? Why didn't Christ defend himself? Back in Isaiah 53, you're told, yet he opened not his mouth. He openeth not his mouth. You know, Mark, the high priest, stood up and said, Answerest thou nothing? You're not even going to offer a defense? But he held his peace and answered nothing. In Mark, Pilate asked him again, Answerest thou nothing? Behold how many things they witness against thee. But Jesus yet answered nothing, so that Pilate marveled because he didn't defend himself because justice demanded that he pay the price for having created and given his creatures the ability to choose between right and wrong. Why did the Lord shed Christ's innocent blood? We already have discovered it's a sin to shed innocent blood. Well, we were told in 1 Peter 1, 19, that we were bought with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish, without spot. But that's the blood that was shed. We were told that he was tempted like as we are yet without sin. And that was the blood that was shed. And why did God shed Christ's innocent blood? Because his innocent blood will be the covering for the sins of the whole world. That's in 1 John 2, I believe. He is the propitiation, the covering, the mercy seat for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Everybody say whole world. Maybe it's a little stronger if we, we use the Greek word, the whole cosmos. You see, God has taken responsibility for what he has done, for what he is doing, and what he will do. That's what Calvary was all about. God has taken responsibility. Listen to me. Every bad thing 
that ever happened to you. For every grief, every sorrow, every pain, he took responsibility for it at the cross. That's why he didn't defend himself. What did they charge him of? Claiming to be God. Claiming to be the creator of the universe. Yeah, guilty as charged. You are the one responsible for the mess we're in today. Because had you not done what you did, it wouldn't have been messed up. True. Guilty as charged. I'll pay the price for what I did. Praise the Lord. I want you to apply that to yourself. That price at Calvary that paid for every wound you've ever inflicted on anybody else or even upon yourself. He paid the price for every wound you've ever suffered and he became a human being so that you could know him. And when you think about God, don't think about the glorious way beyond. Think about that Christ. When you wonder how he can love you, think about that Christ. He doesn't know the possibility of not loving you. Jesus Christ allowed the crucifixion so that you would someday determine his true value. I'm almost done. So God leaves the final judgment concerning his value up to you. How many of you remember the scripture when Jesus said, if I testify of myself, my testimony is not true. Do you think that means if I testify of myself, I'm lying? No, he can't lie. But what it says is my testimony is not valid. My testimony in my behalf is not valid. Somebody else has to testify about me. Right? And he says, now look, I'm one who testifies of me. The Father's one who testifies of me. The works testify of me. Well, that's all true. And anything he says about himself is true. But it doesn't establish his value. That has to be from the testimony of someone else. And he says, you are my witnesses. Are you there? But those who do not know Jesus Christ are not qualified to judge him. Those who don't know you are not qualified to judge you. You aren't qualified to judge you. You want to know how good you are? Just ask me. No. So those who don't know him, they cannot assess his value. They can't justify his existence. But someday they will come face to face to him. Okay. I ask this question. I know Brother Smith has heard it, Brother... Uh, Thorson has heard it. Brother McAtee's heard it. I think Jesse and, and Jordan have heard it. Uh, 
the question of why do they, Scripture, call it the great white throne? Especially if you study it and you discover that no one who goes to the great white throne is going to be saved. Every human being that has to appear before the great white throne will be condemned forever. And yet it's called the great white throne. Why not the great black throne? The great red throne? Or the horrible throne? Why? Because it's there that they are going to see him for who he really is. And they're going to see themselves for who they really are. And you know, that's going to produce in them the greatest single surprise in human life. And everyone in hell is going to be astounded when they learn how hard they had to fight with God to get there. You know something you never see in the scripture? Is anybody in hell saying, I don't deserve to be here. Because it's at that great white throne that they will see him for who he is. And that prophecy in Isaiah, he said, the word hath gone out of my mouth in righteousness, not egotism, in righteousness, and shall not return, that unto me every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall confess. I was always taught, Brother Smith, that that was a threat. And preachers have used it, you're going to do it now or you're going to do it then. But that's not a threat. You read the context. He's saying, oh, when you find out who and what I am, I will be such a God that you will voluntarily bow your knee. And you will voluntarily confess because you'll see me as I am. That story in Matthew uh, 18, is it, about the servant that owed the 10,000 talents? When he heard his master, the one who loved him enough to not only provide food and shelter and productive involvement in the kingdom, but allowed him to have a wife and children and property, and in addition invested in him 10,000 talents. That one said, sell him. Sell his wife. Sell his children. Sell everything he's got. And let's make a payment on this debt. What did he do? Oh, God, please don't. He fell down and worshiped. Because that's when he realized just how good his master really is. Are you there? Worship at the time of judgment. So I got to quit. You know how that prophecy is fulfilled. When Jesus rose again, he was exalted. And it's to him that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But you and me, we need to, in this life, justify our existence. I justify his existence. I, I do. I agree with every one of the things said at the end of those epistles. 
To the only wise God be glory and honor. And I love that song that the elders sing in Revelation 4.11. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? Because you fixed the mess. No. What does it say? Why is he worthy? For thou hast created all things. And for thy pleasure, thy telema, thy will, they are and were created. So you did good. You did good. And we need to be the ones that evaluate him that way. For of him. Are you ready to quit? Go ahead and stand. That's false hope, but go ahead. (laughs) For of him. And through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. That's neat, isn't it? That's somebody justifying his existence. Maybe somebody, I'm, I'm done. Maybe some of you will now understand why the scripture says without controversy. Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh. What's the next word? Justified. He proved himself to be worthy. His existence is justified because he's a great God. Let's be the people that are that chosen generation that show forth the praises of him. That doesn't mean you go out and and be little Christ. That means but you go out and you show people why he is worthy of them giving their lives to him. You show forth what makes him praiseworthy. Praise the Lord. Amen. Pastor. just worship this one time just together sing together Jesus is the sweetest